Well, before we begin our um, study tonight, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who, command, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. This week we celebrated Purim, and we're continuing our celebrations all weekend long but we also want to look again today at the issue of anti-Semitism, an issue that is in the forefront of the news these days, as well as a timely topic because Purim is, uh, is recorded in the book of Esther, a book devoted to the, the story of how God rescued the Jewish people from a, a terrible anti-Semitic threat. In April, we'll also look at anti-Zionism and how that's unfolding in our day, and even the convergence of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism and how they're unfolding. I want to open up with a scripture. It's in Proverbs chapter 24. And it's a scripture that's really addressed to people like us. It's a word of challenge, it's a word of preparation, and it speaks about challenges that we and others will face in our lifetimes and how we are to prepare for those. So Proverbs chapter 24, starting in verse 10, it says this, if you falter in the day of distress, then how small is your strength, or how limited is your strength. Let me read that verse again. If you falter, if you fail in the day of distress, if you, if you fail in the day of trouble, then how small is your strength? How limited is your strength? That's the first of three verses I wanna share in this passage. It speaks about a need that you and I have to prepare ourselves, to be prepared to have moral courage. This is not talking about uh, how much you can lift. It's not talking about your physical strength. It's talking about the strength of your spirit, the strength of your heart, your, the strength of your conscience. And we know that because in verse 11, it unfolds the concern that God has. Rescue those being led away to death and restrain those stumbling toward the slaughter. The day of trouble, the day of distress may not be your day of trouble and distress. This is not about when you don't have enough money in your bank account. It's not about when you're facing uh, the flu or something like that. It's not about when your boss didn't talk to you nicely or you got passed up for a promotion. This is about something altogether different. It's about having strength that, that is a moral strength that allows you to be courageous for the sake of other people so that you can do what's necessary to help them. Verse 12. And as we're reading this, think about 
Think about the times of the Holocaust. Think about perhaps the times uh, when concentration camps were, were operating in full view of the public. And how the villagers around them, even people in the nearby cities, turned their heads and closed their eyes and basically said, we don't know. Because they didn't want to know. But look at these words, verse 12. If you say, behold, we didn't know about this. Will not he who weighs hearts consider it? Does not the one who guards your life actually know? Will he not repay a man according to his deeds? If we plead ignorance, if we say, well, I just didn't know that there was trouble afoot, or if we said, well, it wasn't in my neighborhood that there was trouble, or it wasn't perhaps in my city or maybe in my state or in my country, maybe it was somewhere else, But this is a warning to us. If we just think that we can escape accountability before God because we choose to be ignorant, the answer is there's no escaping that. That's a sign of weakness. To be uninformed about people in distress is a sign of weakness. You might say, well, I'm not really a news junkie. It doesn't matter. You might say, well, I don't, I don't really pay attention to current events. It does matter. What's happening all around us matters. It's important for us to be aware so that we can develop moral courage. We can learn to stand up. We can learn to be prepared because we'll discover whether we have moral courage during times of distress and trouble when other people are in trouble? Do we use our strength on behalf of those who are endangered? Do we use our strength on behalf of those who are being taken to death? Do we use our strength to rescue other people? This is part of the message about moral courage that Mordechai speaks to Esther. He tells her, don't think you can hide. And she said, but nobody knows I'm Jewish. And he said, well, don't think you can hide. God put you here for this time so that you could be an instrument of strength for him. He has a plan for you. He knows what he needs. He needs people in many different places and many different situations. You may be the only one who could help someone, a particular individual. You may be one among many who need to join together to help large numbers of people. Do we use our strength to rescue others? This is also part of the life message of Yeshua who used all of his life to rescue those who were perishing, who were being taken to an eternity of death and sorrow. And he gave his life up for us as a ransom for us. He purchased us but he did it also as an example to us. He accomplished for us something that we could never accomplish for ourselves. But he also taught us something about what is valuable and what is worth giving life for. When I think about Purim, I think about ancient times, but when I 
think about more recent times, I think about the Holocaust and what happened during World War II and how Jewish people perished because others didn't stand up for them. And many were silent and many turned their head and many knew, but they didn't want to know. And they were afraid for themselves and then it was too late. But wherever people of moral courage acted, some Jewish people were saved and rescued. And wherever the moral courage was lacking, Jewish people were lost and were murdered. I want to read to you a story. This is the story of the family of a pastor in Riga, Latvia, who I met in 1997. His name was Pastor Nikolai. And he shared with me how he came to love the Jewish people. He said it must have come from his mother's milk. I'm reading to you from my book in that day. His parents were righteous Gentiles, they were Christians, who had hidden the Jews from the Nazis, helping the Jews even at their own peril. That was his family's legacy. We heard Pastor Nikolai assert that he he knew from his family's love and devotion to the Jewish people that he should also be willing to serve the Messianic congregation that was starting there in Riga. And uh, he offered his space, his building for that. He grew up in a conservative Pentecostal family. His parents, his mother's parents lived in the village and here I'm going to not do well. I didn't even prepare this. It's, I I don't really know um, Latvian very well at all. Let me put it this way, I don't know it at all. But it's like Gretchen Novivici. In a large, actually it's not from Latvia, it's from Belarus. In a largely Jewish area, the Gomel region of Belarus. And during the time of the Nazi occupation of Belarus, his grandfather, Vasily Korj, hid about 25 Jews on his farm. And the only place that was large enough to hide them was a swine house. The muddy, filthy shed where the pigs were raised. For two or three weeks, these Jews hid from the Germans. And then Korge determined that it wouldn't be safe for them any longer. He came up with a plan to evacuate the Jews one by one. The peril was great. The Jews had to get to the forest in order to escape to real safety. But to get there, they must pass a Nazi outpost. Vasily Korsh devised a simple plan. He would hand carry each Jewish man, woman, and child one by one in a burlap sack. Carefully, he instructed each of his charges not to move or make a sound. Once a person was safely hidden in the bag, He hoisted the heavy sack with the neck of the sack tied closed, closed with a rope and hanging over his shoulder. 
and off he would go. Where are you going, the Nazis would ask. To the forest, he would answer. And what's in the sack, the inquiry would continue. Just one of my dead swine. I will take it to the people who live in the forest and they'll bury it so that it will not rot and contaminate my will. Very well, go on. This simple deception worked again and again. And finally, Korge was known as the man who had too many dead swine. (laughs) Isaiah had prophesied that God would turn his attention with miracles to the Gentiles and they would bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. Kings will be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. Perhaps this ancient prophecy was tumbling through the minds of the Jews as one brave soul carried so many of them upon his shoulders in humble sacks. Once they arrived in the forest, Korz would take each Jew to an underground hiding place. The partisans had created these subterranean fortresses out of sight, out of mind, better that no one else knows, they all thought. And so the 10 Jewish families made it out of the village safely into the forest and thus into the hands of those who were fighting for their freedom. Each day, Korsh's wife would carry a basket of food into the forest, there to nourish the Jews who had grown familiar with and never accustomed to the daily hunger. After the final Jew had been taken into the forest, someone reported to the Nazis that Korsh was a traitor and was hiding Jews. Nazi troops came to his farm, dominated the area around the swine house, and then fired upon it relentlessly until nothing was left alive. They thought they were firing upon Jews, but alas, it was only the swine who had perished. When the soldiers discovered that there were no Jews, they were outraged. They tied up Vasily Korj, binding him in rope, tying his wrists together, then dragging him behind a horse. Horribly he was dragged with such force that the rope from the horse to his wrist pulled tight and powerfully and snapped Korsh's wrist, pulling it out of the socket and then finally ripping off his hand. Blood flowed forcefully as the driven horse continued to drag its victim. Finally they stopped, they left Korsh for dead and they went on their way. And yet someone came to help, carried his near lifeless body into the forest, bringing the simple hero into a hidden Soviet army hospital camp. His hand forever gone, the medical unit was able to sew up what was left of his arm and stabilize him. Nikolai's grandfather fled into the forest, the Nazis burned his farm and the swine house to the ground. The family joined the partisans and remained in the cover of the forest until the war concluded. Korsh's brother, a general in the Soviet army, helped them and the partisans. This was a man who had moral courage. This was a man who put his own life at risk. He stood up against anti-Semitism in a way that cost him dearly. 
He gave himself for the sake of others. He used his strength. He used his power in the day of distress. Now, it would not have been so much distress for him had he not done this. But he had the courage to spend his strength for the sake of others, that they would be rescued. And he used his strength. And he lived out his days with only one hand. But what a sacrifice. Sometimes I think people confuse what can be called virtue signaling. Do you know what that is? That's where you make announcements like on Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that about how you're taking a moral stand. You know, you're liking somebody who's taking a position about something or you're disliking somebody else. That's not to be confused with moral courage. Those are just words, those aren't deeds. It's easy in the anonymity of the social network world to act like you have courage. But you know what courage requires? That you do, that you take action for the sake of others. Even when it puts yourself at risk. Think about this. Yeshua was asked, what's what's the greatest commandment? And there are a lot of people who are drawn into the Messianic movement who would say, ah, Shabbat, it's the holidays, it's... No, that's not his answer. He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And then he said, there's another one like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Later on, he tells a terrible story about a uh, a man who was beat up on the highway and left wounded and perhaps dying. And he told the story of how one of the priests walked by and avoided him, turned his head, avoided him. And then one of the Levites walked by, did the same thing. And then according to the form of the way the story should go, it should be a normal Israelite, not one of the clergy, if you will, who comes by next, but it's not. It's a Samaritan, a Samaritan. This was a group that Jews did not particularly like. The Samaritans had their own version of the Bible. It was a little bit different than the Jewish version. It sort of was anti-Semitic in some ways. The Samaritans thought that God had finished with the Jews, so they were like the early replacement theology guys. And they had some heresies of different kinds. And so they were considered outcasts. They were considered people who didn't hold to the scriptures and they didn't understand God and they didn't understand God's people. And Yeshua doesn't play fair with anybody's hearts or minds when he changes the way the story unfolds and he makes it a Samaritan who walks by. And the Samaritan stops and helps him. And not only that, the Samaritan 
takes him somewhere where he can recuperate and pays for the lodging and pays for the care, for the food, and then promises that he will come back and check up on the guy, and if it costs more, he'll pay the difference. And so Yeshua tells this story when no one's ready for it because everybody else had a different kind of religious answer for the question, this great theological question, well, who is my neighbor? Yeshua tells this story, and it's really unfair because nobody who's listening wants to answer Yeshua's question. Because Yeshua asked the question, so who acted like a neighbor? It's like, drat. (laughs) And it forced the people to think about the humanity and the actions of those who were outcasts among them, who were heretics, who were religiously wrong. And Yeshua, you know, spent time with Samaritans and gave them some, a few lessons. And he never, he, he never corrupted the truth in those matters. But at the human level, Yeshua was saying, the second greatest command is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so how do you think about your, who is your neighbor? How you think about this is very important. And then he tricks everybody. It's just not fair. And it's not fair today. I know you won't like this, but if he told the story today, it could be the Muslim. It could be the radical Muslim. And then you'd just be mad at him. How do I know you'd be mad at him? Because some of you are mad at me right now because I even said that idea. But he challenged us not to just judge people according to their theological correctness, but according to their humanity before God and their actions before God as the book of Proverbs speaks. It's quite challenging, isn't it? I didn't, that wasn't in my notes to say Muslim just now. I think that was from the Holy Spirit. He probably wanted to trouble you and to make me feel uncomfortable. (laughs) No, I'm serious. We have to learn how to see beyond people's theological directions and how to see beyond their uh, social directions and how to see them as people. Isn't that what Yeshua was saying? Who, who saw that wounded guy as a person? Who was willing to use their strength to rescue him? And then Yeshua does something that is just so unfair, he doesn't let the hero be any of the good religious people. It's just not fair. If he, maybe if he told it 
Today it would be something like this. And then a messianic rabbi walked by, but he was too busy. And then the worship team walked by. It'd be something like that. And then this Wahhabi Muslim came and stopped. And then, so who, who acted like a neighbor? Drat. It wasn't the Messianics being the good guys. You see, he, he told the story because people are so accustomed to, to wanting to appear virtuous to ourselves even if we don't to God. If we can convince ourselves we've got enough virtue. Well, it's not enough to persuade ourselves. We learn by practice, we learn by our actions how to get stronger, and you will get stronger, I tell you, if you learn to stand up for people in distress now. If you learn to stand up uh, for, against anti-Semitism now. The anti-Semitism on the left and the anti-Semitism on the right. If you learn how to do that, if you learn how to stand up against the anti-Semitism in your families and with your friends, or the apathy, where people say, well, I I don't care. You know, it's not important to me, I got my own problems. To learn how to, to, to care and to help others care too, this is important. Of course, it doesn't stop with fighting anti-Semitism. If it did, Yeshua would have told the story quite differently. It starts by fighting that kind of thing and then recognizing what it is that is a kind of hatred of what God loves. It's a kind of hatred of humanity. It's a kind of hatred even of the Lord. I'll close with the comments from someone whose book I recommended last week, Edward Flannery, who wrote a book on, called The Anguish of the Jews, 23 Centuries of Anti-Semitism. And... Uh, He, he wrote this in a 1960, or he said this in a 1967 interview. The anti-Semite, not the Jew, is the real Christ killer. He thinks he's religious, but that's a self-delusion. Actually, he finds religion so heavy a burden, he develops Christophobia. He's hostile to the faith, and has an unconscious hatred of Christ, who is for him Christ the repressor. He uses anti-Semitism as a safety valve for the hostility and is really trying to strike out at Christ. He wrote this as a Catholic priest. And he, along with John uh, Osterreicher, were two Catholic priests who paved the way to uh, the change in the Catholic Church that was reflected in uh, Nostra Aetate in in the 60s, where the Catholics repudiated anti-Semitism. They repudiated 
the, the doctrines that the Jews were corporately responsible, responsible for the crucifixion. They renounced it. They called it what it was. It was a false doctrine. It was anti-Semitism. And they led the Catholic Church formally into a new understanding that caused even the Catholics to call the Jews their elder brothers and to declare the Jewishness of the Messiah that they serve. It changed things. It took great courage. Typically, people who had done that in earlier centuries were killed. Even in the 20th century, they were killed for taking such a statement, taking such a position and making such a statement. And yet, with great moral courage, they led the Catholic Church in a different direction, an important direction that has changed the attitude of Jewish people even to the Christian faith today. It's interesting. And you might have your grievances with the Catholic Church. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about that, I'm talking about this. It's so important. Well, I want to I close with an idea that God would use you. That God would use you to help somebody else in trouble. That God would use you to have moral courage to stand up against anti-Semitism, to stand up and to learn how to do it effectively so that it's not just combat, Verbally, it's not just argument, it's not just disputes, but it's influential and it has an impact on other people. To yell at people in such a way that they run away is nothing. You could as well be a fierce dog, but that will not have influence on the way people think or feel or what they do. But we learn from the example of this pastor in Pastor Nikolai that what he knew of what his grandfather did, it shaped him. It touched two generations, if you will, and made him into a different kind of person. And let it be that we can develop such courage and we can demonstrate such courage. It'll shape generations to come. Lord, on this week in which we're celebrating Purim, in which we're remembering how moral courage and faith unite together and even take risks for the sake of others. Let it be, Lord, that this rises up in us, that we cultivate this courage, that we learn to stand up for those who are being oppressed and for those who are cast out, that we learn to defend the orphan and the widow and the powerless and the immigrant, and that we learn to spend ourselves on behalf of those in distress. We pray this in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Well, we're going to close with Aaron's blessing. I want to ask you to stand. And if you're standing by yourself, you can move. <laughs> Duty time, Javier. <laughs> I love it. I miss it. 
Here we go. You know what? We, we probably need like a, a Hebrew and a Hebrew. I don't know. Do you feel like chanting? I can do Russian. You want to do Russian? Yeah. Uh, Hebrew chanting. Slava Bogu. Da, da. Okay, you want to do Hebrew? I don't know. Do you guys know the English? Yeah, we'll test you. Okay. They'll help us. Okay. So, I'm starting with the English? No, you're starting with the Hebrew. Okay, here's a bone. I'm going to throw you a microphone, too, but I'm still wired. Okay, so. Is this the right end of talking to it? Is okay. It's kind of gross, isn't it? Okay. <laughs> yeah, don't don't spit on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, as you know, I always pray this prayer very deeply for each and every one of you. I met Nino tonight. He's going to be traveling. Please, as you close your eyes and let this prayer wash over you, uh, that you know that this is for you as it is for every single person here. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace. 